Hello and welcome to today's podcast. Now, before we get into today's pod, just wanted to make you aware, if you're not already aware of meandmygolf.com, that is where we have our premier content. So we are talking coaching plans, which are designed to help you break 100, break 90, break 80, to improve your irons, to improve your putting. Everything is there that you need to help you change your game either over four weeks, six weeks or eight weeks when it comes to these coaching plans. There's also lots of other features on the website including the up and coming roadmap, the shot fixer and also just hundreds of videos that you can peruse at your own pleasure. So make sure you go and check that out. We'd really love to see you there to to see what you think of it. You can take advantage of the free trial right now and it'd be excellent to uh, see what your feedback was on the site. Now, speaking of excellent, we have one of the best, if not the best golf coach in the world. This man works with former world number ones, former major winners. He even got to witness Tiger Woods being coached in his early days on the PGA Tour. So you've guessed it, we're talking about Claude Harmon, who is coach now to Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka, amongst many others. And it's, it's a fascinating conversation because whenever Claude talks, he really does hold the room. He's got a lot of information. And we and you know what? We have probably 10 or 12 questions already lined up for Claude. We only really got a chance to ask one or two of them, but that was great because he answered everything that we wanted, we wanted answering. But what he also did is he provided a ton of value for you, the golfer, to help start improving your games. So without further ado, here's Claude Harmon. So Claude Harmon, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm bored. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's been, it's been a really strange time. I mean, I haven't really done anything since uh, March 11th. I drove home from the players championship. Um, You know, we got the call late um, Thursday night at the players and, you know, I'd already gone to bed because Brooks was teeing off first thing in the morning on Friday on, 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 which would have been the, the second round of the players. And um, so I drove home from Jacksonville, which is about a four hour drive. And really, to be honest, I really haven't left my house much. Um, you know, in the last week or so, Brooks has obviously started to hit balls. I think everybody's, you know, that's able to hit balls and get out to golf courses down here in Florida has been able to, to do that. But, you know, I haven't done and I haven't given any lessons um, really since um, early March. It's been, it's been crazy. Yeah. It is, it is, it is for sure, for sure. And I think, you know, well, it's, it's, it's great to see all the golf pros sort of rallying around and doing these Instagram lives. And obviously you did the thing with like Doherty, you know, the tea time tips and things like that. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's amazing how creative we've had to be as a result of it, for sure. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I just filmed some content for um, Scratch. You know, I did a video series that came out last year and filmed it all at home and, um, you know, had my... Cameras out, so that'll be coming out in a couple of weeks, so that was fun, and got uh, to be a little bit creative. But I, I, I mean, I our course here, believe it or not, at my club, we stayed open through the whole, through the whole time, and and you know, I could have been teaching and 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 working and stuff. I just didn't really feel like it was the right thing to do. I mean, obviously, with everything that's going on around the world, and I just felt that you know I needed to do my part to to stay home and and just do what everybody else is doing. So. Um, you know, it, it still feels really weird to be out of the house. Um, you know, okay. it, it's uh, I'm going to do a little work this afternoon with, you know, one of the guys that I work with, Chris Ventura, who plays on PGA Tour. But even that feels a little it just feels it feels weird. I still think we're 
Um, we don't know where the bottom of this is. And, um, you know, if you look at the way the world looked, you know, when we were at the Players' Championship, you know, in the you know, second week of March, you could never envision what all of our lives would be like today, Yeah. you know, in early, in early May. So, um, you know, I don't think anybody really knows where we're going to be, you know, a month from now. So uh, yeah. I think everybody just needs to do their part and try and, and minimize, you know, as much as they can. Yeah, absolutely. Totally, yeah, totally agree. I think, look, again, look, thank you for your time today. It's it's, it's mm-hmm. fantastic to get one of the best golf coaches in the world on as yourself. And I think we could talk about so many different things. And the danger is we could spend five hours talking about golf because obviously you're very passionate about it. Me and Andy are as well. But it'd be great for the listeners to who they will all know you. But it'd be great to maybe get an insight as to how you've got to this point with your coaching. So what has your coaching journey been like in a Ooh. in a <laughs> sub five minute um you know i went um i think i'm very uh, i think i'm somewhat unique in in golf instruction i never played golf at any level um i wasn't a big golfer growing up um i didn't play i mean i'd go out and play occasionally but i was never any good uh i didn't play junior golf uh, i didn't play any amateur golf i didn't play i think i tried out for my high school golf team because i felt like i had to because of who my dad was um, I think it was nine holes and I guarantee I didn't break 50. Um, and it just, I just was never into, into golf. Uh, I was into other sports. I played, you know, believe it or not for being short, um, and skinny. I wore, um, I played high school football. I was quarterback of the, ju- of my high school football team until I was about a junior. I ran track. I played tennis, played baseball, played basketball, I played basically every other sport, but golf. My dad, I don't think really cared if I played golf. I think he felt a lot of pressure when he was younger, obviously having a, a famous golf father. Um, you know, my grandfather won the masters. I think my dad felt like he had to play all my dad and his brothers played, but he never really pushed me to play golf. So, um, golf wasn't cool when I was growing up. I, you know, I just turned 51 on last Friday. Golf wasn't what it is today. I mean, it was, you know, a lot of old fat guys wearing funky clothes and it wasn't cool. So, um, I didn't play a lot of golf and, um, basically I think around the time I was 16, I started in the summertime. My dad and my uncles did a golf school every summer. My grandfather was still alive and, um, I started hanging out at the golf school uh, that they did. We went up to Ohio and, um, my job was to set up the range and set up the video camera for my dad and just hang out while my dad and his brothers, my grandfather gave lessons. So my Background for golf instruction, believe it or not, is 100% golf instruction. I just basically learned and watched people give golf lessons as opposed to playing golf myself and trying to play competitively and then trying to play professionally or whatever it is, which I think most people, that's how they end up being golf instructors. They played, they, they wanted to be a good player. They played at whatever level they played. And then once they reached that ceiling, they wanted to continue to stay in golf and got into golf instruction. But I just 100% learned how to give golf lessons by watching my dad, watching my three uncles and watching my grandfather. Pretty good environment. Pretty good environment. (laughs) I think it's unique. I don't think, um, I don't think I could have had the success that I've had without being around all of the great players that I was lucky enough to watch, you know, my dad, you know, everybody knows, you know, my dad, you know, taught, you know, Greg Norman, Tiger, all of these people, but 
every one of my other, my dad's brothers, you know, my uncle Dick taught Curtis Strange, Lanny Watkins, Ben Crenshaw. Um, my uncle Craig taught um, Jess Sluman, who won a major championship. My uncle Billy caddied for Jay Haas. So I've been around professional golf events my entire life. My dad was playing the PGA Tour when I was born. Uh, you know, by all accounts, I, two weeks after I was born, I was in the back of a station wagon with my sister and my parents driving around while my dad was trying to play on tour. So I've been going to tour events my entire life. And I think being around that environment, you kind of understand a lot of things that you can't learn or you can't be taught. Yeah. And I don't think that I would be able to, to be successful at the tour level um, as an instructor if I didn't have that background because I never played. I never played myself. To this day at 51, you know, golf is still hard. Um, I played golf uh, over the weekend, Brooks said, Hey, let's get out and play golf. And, you know, the golf courses all started to open. So we came up here to the Florence and me and Ricky Elliott and Brooks, we went out and played golf and we were standing on the first tee and Brooks said, you know, I've known you for eight years. I've never seen you hit a golf ball. And uh, I said, well, you're not going to, I said, you're not going to be impressed. So, um, and you know, I, my golf, my actual playing of the game of golf is just to be honest, probably like the majority of the people listening to the podcast, I either hit a good shot or I missed the golf course. There's no in between. Um, and so I also think that always helped me get to where I've gotten because I never think golf is easy. I've never been a golf instructor that played at a high level that's watching somebody hit thin shots or fat shots that sits there in my own head and says, you know, how hard can this be? Just do this because it's still very hard for me to get my body to do a lot of the things that my brain tells me to, to do it. Um, so I think the reason I've gotten to this level is one, I learned how to give golf lessons and I still think golf is very difficult. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? You hit, I've spoke to a lot of good coaches and they say, if you want to be a great coach, get a good player. You know, get a good player. Um, is... <laughs> yeah, I, I got lucky. Um, I started working. I went to college. I got a degree. I majored in political science and history and got a minor in arts and ceramics, believe it or not. Um, I just and then I got out of college. I had no idea what I was going to do. And my dad said, well, I'll give you a job working. He was working at a, a club in Houston where my grandfather worked, a private club called Lock and Bar, where um he taught forever and I was like, great. And I thought I was going to be an assistant golf pro. And I worked in the bag room in Houston, Texas for a year and a half in 95 degree heat and about a hundred percent humidity And the bag room was outside and it didn't have air conditioning. So I picked up the driving range and, um, that was kind of my start into golf. And then after about a year and a half, two years, he let me kind of come in and, you know, work in the pro shop. And I got to give a few lessons, which were horrendous and, wish I could give everybody their money back. And, um, and then I just started, um, you know, I started traveling and I moved to Scotland, Aberdeen, Scotland, I think in 1993, a friend of ours, a guy named Bruce Davidson, who worked for my uncle, um, Dick in Houston. Um, he had a driving range in Aberdeen and invited me over to, to come and work the summer. So I did that. And then, um, we had some family friends that had a place in Southern Portugal and went down on holiday and spent some time there. And, 
met a guy named Wayne Johnson, who was the head pro at a club that had just opened Paneros Altos. And um, he asked me if I wanted a job because he was a big fan of my dad's. And, uh, still best, you know, still good friends with Wayne. So that's kind of how I kind of got into it. And I always really liked traveling and like working in different places. And and then we opened our golf school in, in Vegas, where my dad lives in 1998. And uh, that was right around you know, the time that Tiger just started to turn pro. And um, really from there, the trajectory just kind of took off. I mean, from 90, I'd say when we opened the golf school until I left in 2001, 98 to 2001, I think we saw the best players in the world. I mean, Tiger was there. My dad was working with a bunch of guys. You know, Adam Scott had just, you know, started to, you know, play. And, um, you know, I started working with guys that my dad had worked with and, um, you know, basically just did that for, you know, three years. And then I kind of wanted to do something different. And uh, so I ended up moving to, I moved to London. And I was working with Darren Clark and Adam Scott at the time. And, but I didn't really know anything. I just kind of knew the stuff that my dad had told people. And, um, you know, it was a, it was kind of an eye opener when you get out on your own and get out from that umbrella, you figure out that you don't really know anything. And, and I didn't, I just, I observed a lot of things and been around great players and watched, you know, I was around Tiger from 93 until he and my dad split up in 2002. I videoed the first golf lesson they had in 93. Um, you know, I was standing there when he showed up. And so I moved to Europe and, um, you know, I'll never forget. I was working with, no joke, I was working with Adam Scott and Darren Clark. I think Darren was like six or seven in the world at the time. And he just won a tournament. And, you know, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I went to a, a golf, a friend of mine said, hey, there's a golf club outside of I was living in, I think I was living in Guilford at the time. I won't mention the guy's name, so I won't shame him. <laughs> but um, he said, um, uh, I went for an interview and, you know, I'd been director of instruction at our golf school in Vegas for three years. And um, I wasn't a member of the PJ. Uh, I'm still not a member of the PJ. You know, my dad wasn't. And, you know, that wasn't a big thing to, to him. So I never, you know, became a, a PGA member. And um, the guy said, um, he looked at my resume and he said, um, I don't see you have any qualifications. And I was like, okay. And he said, um, so what I'd be willing to do is you could come as an assistant. And if you make the commitment to get your, your PGA, um, I'll give you a job. And I think that's what, like a three or four year process. Yeah. And he said, you can yeah. work 40 hours in the, in the shop and, <laughs> um, and then you can, teach, you know, a couple hours a week and I'll take 80% of your lesson <laughs> revenue and you can keep 20. And I can't remember the number. And, and I just said, listen, I, I really appreciate you, you talking to me, but you know, that's not something I'm willing to do. And, you know, I'd been, you know, I'd worked in Vegas for three years and, you know, was earning a, you know, very good living. And, and he said, well, just out of curiosity, what happens to someone like you moving forward? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, um, you know, I've just offered you a job that you're not going to take. So where do you see yourself? What are you going to do in two weeks? I said, well, I'm going to get on an airplane and go to Dubai because I told you I'm working with Darren Clark and Adam Scott, and they're both playing the next three tournaments on the European tour. So 
that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get on an airplane. I'm going to go to Dubai and Qatar and, and do that. And I was looking for a job, you know, somewhere that I could base myself here. And he said, well, good luck to you. (laughs) Great. (laughs) And I went to Dubai and, um, Scotty won Qatar the following week. And you know, that's, I mean, I traveled around first real player that I kind of worked with on my own was, um, Uli Carlson, Swedish guy and, um, crazy Swede. And then we were at the Spanish open. Um, and the big break for me was, you know, the Dubai tournament. I went to Dubai and was working with Adam and, um, I was staying in the same hotel. It was when the Marina, there was like two, it was like a hotel on the beach and there were like two high rises in Dubai. And I stayed at the same hotel as all the players and was riding on the bus to and from the golf course. And Trevor Immelman, who I didn't know, um, but I followed his career. Um, you know, I knew that, you know, I watched him as the Publix champion make the cut at the Masters. And I'd always kind of liked his golf swing. And Sunday night, as you guys know, after Dubai, it's just a drunk fest. Everybody just gets off the golf course. They sit at Emirates Golf Club and they just start drinking and all the players and all the caddies are there. And that wasn't really kind of my scene. So that Sunday night, I went back to my hotel room um, and it was like eight o'clock and I was like, well, I'm going to go to the gym. So I went to the gym and Trevor was in the gym and, you know, introduced myself and started talking and I said, Hey, you know, we got out of the gym. I said, you want to go have some dinner? And he was like, yeah. So we went and we had dinner and that following week we went to Qatar and me and Adam Scott and Trevor and Charlie Hoffman was over that week. And we all just basically went out every night, went to this Mexican restaurant in the hotel almost every night. And, um, you know, we just all kind of hung out and like two or three weeks later, I was in Spain and Trevor had asked me to watch him hit some balls that week. And, you know, he was struggling. He was supposed to be one of the next big things. And he was outside, you know, I think he was like two, 300 in the world, really struggling. And we went out to dinner one night and he said, listen, I kind of like the stuff that you told me. What would you, you know, would you like to work together? And I was like, sure. And he said, you know, what would the goal be? And I said, well, the goal would be get you inside the top 50 in the world and then you can play in all the tournaments that you want to play in because you're too good to be where you're at and um and he was like all right cool let's you know let's start working together and we went from spain went to paris national the following week with the french open and i think he shot 63 on the first day (laughs) and malcolm mckenzie somehow made a par on the last hole to beat him by one shot and um you know, and that was kind of my big break to start working with Trevor and, uh, you know, worked with Trevor for almost two years, two and a half years. And, you know, he, you know, won, I think he won six or seven tournaments and, you know, they won the World Cup. He won back to back South African Opens. He won the old Deutsche Bank and, you know, became one of the best players in the world. But that was kind of my first real kind of, you know, working with players and it was awesome. you know, back then, you know, we were just, we were just talking about this it, back then it was tiger one Oh one, you know I mean? It was, you know, I was working with Adam. You know, I think people forget that nobody had ever seen a player that had the speed that tiger had, mm-hmm. whereas everybody has speed now, especially at the elite level. Everybody has, you guys know, I mean, every, you guys do all the tailor-made stuff. Everybody, you know, when you guys come here and do the tailor-made shoot, I mean, this year it's, you know, it's Rory, it's John Rahm, it's DJ, it's Matt Wolf, it's Jason Day. 
every one of those guys has 180 ball speed. And the majority of the guys on the PGA Tour now have upper 175 to, you know, 185 ball speed. When before Tiger, nobody had that. Greg Norman hit it a long way. Maybe guys like Dan Pohl. But back then it was all accuracy and consistency. You know, Nick Faldo, for as big as Nick is, Nick hit the ball nowhere. It was all about accuracy. And so when Tiger came out, everything was about that my dad did with Tiger was how do you take this player that has all of this rotational speed and velocity and get him to find the golf course? Because when Tiger first saw my dad in 93, the first golf lesson my dad ever did with Tiger, my dad said, what, tell me a little bit about your strategy. He was 16. He'd just gotten beat in the quarters of the U.S. Junior at Champions in Houston. And he said, listen, I swing as hard as I can on every swing. I have no idea where the golf ball is going, but I just hit it and find it. But I'm so much longer than all of the juniors that I play with that they're going to be hitting a four iron from the middle of the fairway. And I might be hitting a wedge from the trees, but I can figure that out. So the work that I think my dad was a complete pioneer I think he and Led, David Ledbetter, were pioneers. Led was all about positions, you know, getting golfers to put the golf club in positions. And that was groundbreaking. Nobody thought of that before Led. You know, and that Led had his system and it worked unbelievably. Nicky Price, Ernie Els, you know, I mean, Nick Faldo. I mean, the list just is endless of the players that he created. And they all kind of looked the same, right? That was, that's always been the knock against Led. But people forget that nobody was doing that shit before he did it. Yeah. You know, so it might be that, you know, led to me is like, you know, people look at Andy Warhol's paintings now and go, yeah, everybody's doing that now. Well, nobody was doing that then, right? Yeah. Nobody was telling players, listen, put the golf club in this position. Want, you know, I think Mac O'Grady had touched on some of that, but the message got lost in the messenger. The message of the golf machine was so difficult for the masses to understand. So lead came along and had this system that you could take players and he had so much success with it. And then, then to me, the two modern golf instruction pioneers, my dad got this 18 tiger could hit an eight iron with a max fly HT 90 golf ball and Mizuno MP. I think he had MP 27s maybe back then he had the burner flex twist, the old burner with the, yeah, the yeah. tone shaft. He could hit eight irons. He could hit greens from 185, 190 yards with an eight iron, which we see guys do down the stretch now, right? You know, down the stretch, he's got a chance to win a golf tournament. He's got 100. Johnny, what's he got? He's, you know, he's got 185. You're not going to believe this. He's hitting nine iron. And everybody goes, oh, wow. Well, Tiger was doing that stuff in 93. And so the puzzle that my dad had to fix was – how do you take someone that has more raw speed than anybody's ever seen and get him to be able to find the golf course? And so I watched all of that. And as a result of that, guys like Trevor Immelman came out who had tremendous rotational body speed. Adam Scott came out who had a lot of rotation. You know, Adam, everybody thinks my dad tried to teach Adam to, to swing like Tiger. When we saw Tiger Woods, we used to call Adam Scott baby shark. Because he swung identical to Adam uh, to Greg Norman, had the back foot slide, 
He had the same follow through. He had the same waggles. He was tall like Greg was. Golfers, you guys know, I mean, golfers, you look at, I mean, other than Greg Norman, most golfers back in the day, Woozy, Sandy Lyle was big, but Tom Kite isn't a big guy. Curtis Strange isn't really a tall They back Back in the day, being tall was bad for golf. Peter Oosterhaus and Andy North and Tom Seekman, they were, they were told they would be bad golfers because yeah. they were tall, because you couldn't get equipment to fit them, because the golf clubs had to be way too heavy and super, super stiff. So, you know, the young guns that came out that I was lucky enough to work with that shaped my career, Adam and Trevor, were just, nope, how do you get these young players to to match the velocity speed to what the dynamics of their their positions were doing. So it was back in the day, it was Tiger 101, you know, width, get wide on the downswing. You know, I think nobody talked about getting the club back in front of you before my dad started working on that stuff. You know, with Tiger, that was the only way they could match up what the club is doing to how much speed he had. Whereas now everybody's trying to get back in to lay the club down and, you know, the work I think George does with Matt Wolf, that's now the rage. It's drop it behind you, lay it down. But it's funny how it goes the other way. But when I started working with Trevor, you know, he was, you know, super inside. The face was shut. He was across the line. So we did a lot of the things to try and, you know, we weakened his grip. We got them wider, we got them shorter, and, and worked a lot on some of the stuff that, you know, I mean, tight, if you look at Adam Scott's golf swing, it's really no different today than it was 20 years ago. Yeah, you know, and that's I, testament I read, to I, his physical being, isn't it? Yeah, and I read somewhere that, you know, the joke being that Adam Scott spent 20 years with the same golf swing, and Tiger Woods had Adam Scott's golf swing 20 years ago, and it spent 20 years trying to, to, to break it. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know what? It's, it's great to listen to the, the, the backstory as well from, from you, Claude, because I think that's something that not many people, people will see you coach and the players that you coach and, you know, on Sky Sports. So nobody really gets to, to understand where you've come from and all the work that you've put in. So it's great to get a little bit of insight into that. You know, the one thing I will say is the 10,000 hour, the 10 year rule, that's real. You know, the, when I first started working with a, with any sort of professional golfer on my own, not somebody that I'd helped with my dad, but Trevor was the first real player I'd ever worked with on my own. And I knew nothing. I just had, I had to come up with all of this stuff. And I think it's really important that anybody that's into instruction listening is you have to figure out what's important to you, not what's important from somebody else. It's easy to say, listen, you know, Sean Foley says this, George Genkis says this, Claude Harmon says this, David Ledbetter says this, whatever. But I think you become a better instructor when you figure out, okay, what is it about all of these things that I like that I can take and kind of make my own? And that's what I did. I took all the stuff that my dad, I didn't purposely ask my dad for any help with Trevor for ever. I mean, I wanted everything. I needed to make mistakes and I made a, a ton of mistakes. Here with Trevor. I mean, that was, I mean, and I think you have to make those mistakes, but Trevor was the first tour player I started to work with. And I worked with Ernie Els in 2012 when he won a major at, at Royal Lytham, won the open championship. And that was, that was 10 years of traveling all over the world, working with different players, making mistakes. But if you're going to coach tour players like I do, that's 
that's the coaching major to work with a player that had worked with, you know, to, to win a major champion. It took 10 years. Um, mm. I got divorced. You know, I was married before I got divorced in the process. I quit teaching golf. You know, I, 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 I always say about Trevor is one of my best friends. You know, I fired him in 2004 and then he rehired me in 2013 and then he fired me. But, <laughs> you know, I quit teaching from, I quit teaching any tour players from 2004 until 2010. Wow. I just became disillusioned. I didn't like the person I'd become. My entire life was golf. And so, um, but now all those cliches in life, they're cliches because they're true. Um, it takes, you know, you know, I look at the success that I've had in the last three or four years and, you know, I'm still, you know, Adam Scott and Trevor and I get together for dinner, you know, two or three times a year. And we sit and talk about, you know, where their journey's been, you know, has been very similar to my journey. We were, you know, we were all just young kids trying to figure it all out. Yeah. I think what, I mean, we've been lucky enough now to, to listen to you and speak and see you speak a couple of times. And one of the things that we really love about your approach as well, Claude, is that you keep things extremely simple in the fact that you understand the technology, you understand the science, and but you don't try and coach the science. You don't try and overcomplicate things. And I think that's something that we admire as you and a coach because with so much data and technology around, it's so easy to get lost and, and get away from that. And I think one of the things that you've talked about in the past before is that people almost get away from playing the game. You know, they can go get so bogged down in numbers and trying to hit certain positions and... How do you strike the the balance of using technology and coaching, and but still get that balance with just going out there and playing as well? Because it's it's a key component, probably more so than ever. Yeah, I think now we we know more about the golf swing than we ever you know we ever have. I mean, we can measure everything. We can measure what the golf club's doing. You know, we can measure you know what the ball's doing. We can measure what your body's doing, how you're transferring your weight. You know, if you want to go down the rabbit hole and hang out with Sasha McKenzie and Chris Como and all those guys and figure out the difference between, you know, the club being in this position versus being in that position and hand path and all of that. So we know more now guys than we ever have, but I think we're in a interesting time in golf instruction because we're running the risk of creating generations of data collectors. Um, and I think the data as a golf instructor, it's what you do with data that is the most important. Um, and I think there is a tremendous amount of information out there, but the information's only good if the player gets better with the information you're giving them. So when I look at how I use data, data for me is for the player. It's not for me. Um, I think at any stage in golf instruction, you should be able to kind of get an idea of what a player's doing without a track man, without 3D, without any of it. You should kind of be able to form a good idea. I always look at what I do like being a chef. And one of my favorite programs, my wife's from the UK, we watch it every year, MasterChef, big MasterChef guy, watch, religiously <laughs> watch MasterChef. But my favorite series of MasterChef is MasterChef the Professionals, where they bring in chefs that have their own restaurants, that they're cooks or whatever, and they bring them in for the first episode with Marcus Warren, who's a Michelin star chef. He cooks a dish, and then they give them the time that it would take to do it. And every single time, they mess it up. 
and they have their own restaurants. And <laughs> something happens and, you know, they're, they're nervous or whatever. And they know how to cook, but they try and do too many things or they try and do something they don't know how to do. And then it gets complicated and they just don't make some. I mean, how many times do you see those guys try and make a dish that you know they have no history in making it? And then they try and make that dish more complicated. So they don't know what they're doing. They give them a piece of fish, which they have to fillet the fish. They've never done that before. So rather than just make it super simple, they take something that they don't know how to do and make it more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, every time, you know, they give a dish, the, the, the two guys will say, there's so much going on here. I, I don't even know what flavors I'm supposed to. That's kind of the way I think about golf instruction. I think a lot of it like cooking. What dish am I trying to create? And I think if you can try and pare down instruction, I look at instruction like cooking. What, what am I trying to do? What needs to happen so that if you create a great dish, you, whatever the, if you're creating fish, you want to taste fish. If you're creating something with meat, you want to taste it. You don't want to have so much going on. You can't even figure out what it is. And so I try and make golf instruction to me as simple as possible because the game is so hard. Playing the game of golf at any level, whether it's recreational, amateur, competitive, the actual playing of the game is so chaotic. Nothing goes according to plan. Everything is random. So when you're actually playing it, if what you're working on from a technique standpoint is super complicated, it's going to make it difficult to actually produce when you're trying to play the game. So I try and take all of the instruction that I do and make it as simple as possible. I learned that from my dad. Um, you know, my dad gets, I think sometimes with some of the modern instructors can sometimes be the poster guy and, and get a bad rap for, you know, trying to keep things simple. You know, I remember a couple of years ago, Joe Mayo, the, the track man maestro, no longer with us on social media, um, uh, <laughs> you know, said something, you know, was beaten up on my dad about, you know, golf is complex and it needs to be taught complex and put up some bullshit Aristotle or, you know, Nietzsche quote about, you know, complicated problems need complicated. I just don't believe that's true. No. And, you know, my dad's always tried to keep things simple. And, you know, I think when you watch my dad give a golf lesson, I think people are surprised that he will work on one thing for an hour, for two hours, for three hours, but he'll just work on one thing. And his philosophy is you work on one thing and you find the one thing that is going to change the other five to 10 things you want to fix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of young instructors trying to fix five to 10 things at once. Yeah. And yeah. they go, they start something to work on one thing. And again, it's, again, it's the cooking analogy. They got four or five things going they run out of time and they end up just putting something out that doesn't look great. It doesn't taste any good because yeah. they just overcomplicated it. And, you know, my dad used to always tell me your students don't care how smart you are. Yeah. The only thing they care about is improving their golf swing. 
They don't care if you're how much knowledge you have, how many big words you can use. The only reason they're coming to you is to break 100 for the first time or to break 80 for the first time or to win a tournament for the first time or to hit the golf ball solid, to stop shanking it, to stop hitting it back. They don't care how smart you are. Absolutely. They just Absolutely. want you to fix their problem. Yeah. And so of course. that's one of the reasons why I try and keep things as kind of simple as possible so that when the players that I work with go, I mean, Brooks and I have been working together for eight years. We're working on the same things over the weekend. We played Saturday, watching them. we're working on the same things today that we were working on eight years ago. They never change Yeah. because yeah. we know that those things help him play his best. And I think that data for the sake of data collecting in golf instruction is you have to do something with the information. Yeah. And yeah. to me, I only use information for something specific. I'm not an instructor that wants to sit there. You know, Sean Foley, he wants to see every shot on TrackMan, on a launch barn. He wants to know what the player is doing. That's and it works for him. He's one of the best yeah. golf instructors in the world. I just know that when the player gets out on the golf course, they're not going to have a launch monitor sitting next to them. So if they hit a bad shot, they sure as hell better know what to do. And if they keep hitting that, they sure as hell better know how to do something else as opposed to just sit there and play golf. And I think that's what I think the biggest single criticism of technology and launch monitor technology is players get good players and even average golfers, they get their numbers. They go out on the golf course. They're hitting shots that aren't matching what they've been working on. And they spend 18 holes trying to do the exact same thing. <laughs> and they don't go, okay, the plane is crashing. I don't care what I have to do now. I just have to do something. So the plane doesn't crash. And I think so many golfers go out and spend, you know, try to draw the golf ball for 18 holes. They don't draw the golf ball in the driving range. And, but they try and go out and drive the golf ball on the, on, the, on the golf course. And they play terrible because they're going out and trying to do something that they struggle to do on the driving range. Yeah. yeah. As, and the difference between technology, and I think modern golf instruction has made golfers believe that technique is the same thing as playing golf and it's not you would you say this technique. is the biggest thing that you see with players Without when you get doubt. them on the lesson tee on the course that they are trying to yeah everybody is 100 percent convinced that if they hit a bad shot it's technique, it's technique. Mm -hmm. and i always say to the players regardless of the handicap is it's really important when you're analyzing your own game not when when you're working or taking golf lessons the single biggest thing that you can analyze is ask yourself one question. Is it a technique issue or is it an execution issue? So a good example is you're sitting and you've got a 15-yard uh, you know, wedge shot and you blade it over the green and you hit it fat. That's technique. If you hit it too far and you don't carry it the right distance or you don't hit it at the target, that's execution. But what players do is that they play bad on the golf course when they play around the golf, they immediately just go back into technique. 
Yeah. Yeah. Immediately. It's the only thing my... that they know, though, isn't it? And it's it's the only thing that's almost sort of a physical, tangible thing. You know, strategies. You know, maintaining stats. You know, that that's not tangible to them. Whereas the technique yeah. of seeing that on a video camera, they've had a lesson. That's all they, it, they think on. But also, I think golfers. You know, the difference between random and block practice, golfers tend to do all their practice with one club, a seven iron or an eight iron, and that's where they work the mechanics. But if you think about that, which, I mean, I do that. We all do that. I mean, we do that in golf lessons. But I always try and tell players, listen, you've got to remember, you could go play golf today. We've just spent an hour working with a seven iron. It might be to the 13th hole before you actually ever hit a seven iron. So I think the way that golf, I think golf is practiced backwards. You know, what I've tried to do, and I'm, I, listen, I'm lucky enough I work at a private club, I can do this, but what I try and do with players now is, listen, let's watch you hit some balls. Let's get some data. Let's get some track launch monitor data, 3D data, force plate data. Let's video your golf swing. And then, you know what, let's go play a hole or two holes. I'll have a pretty good idea of what happens and which direction we're going to go. But most people only want to look at the golf. I want to see what players are doing on the golf course. You know, I, I, I told a story recently. Uh, the Rolex um, AJGA championship is here. Big junior tournaments here every November. They played at PJ National where they play the Honda Classic. And a girl who I'd never met before, Asian girl from California, I think she was 16, she flew in the week before and they booked me for two hours, three hours a day for like five days in a row. She had an AJGA champions bag. She was a good player. She'd won an AJGA. I think she was top 50 in AJGA's rankings. Watched her hit golf ball. She had a beautiful golf swing, beautiful natural rhythm. Watched her chip, watched her putt. And I'm sitting there trying to figure out, could, could I find something wrong with her golf swing? Sure, I could find something wrong with anybody's golf swing. You can always say, hey, this could get better or that could get better. And I said to her dad, I said, you know, the dad was super involved and I'm, and I'm trying to keep the dad away and put him you know, <laughs> over into a specific area and said, Let's, let me just kind of take a look at what's happening. He's coming in and trying to tell me all the things she's doing wrong and everything. I'm like, yeah, no, that's no, great. And I said, listen, we're going to go out and play three holes. And he wanted to come out. I said, no, no, just let us go out and play three holes. So we went out and we watched her play three holes. And you could immediately see that she doesn't play a lot of golf, except mm. when she plays in tournaments. Plays a ton of golf when she plays in tournaments. But And I said, "How do you play golf a lot? And she said, oh, yeah, I play golf all the time. I said, so how many days a week do you play golf? Every day. I said, great. You play golf seven days a week? Well, no, no, I go to the range every day for three to four hours. And then maybe Saturday or Sunday I'll play nine or 18 holes. I said, so basically you practice nonstop. So I said, when do you play? Well, I play a lot of tournaments. So I said, how much percentage of playing golf is tournament golf versus regular rounds of golf? She was like, maybe 20% is non-tournament golf. And I said, so watched her play some golf you could see that she just didn't really have a lot of golf brain. She was very much, she had a bad shot. She immediately started to look at her golf swing. And I'm like, you know, the pins on the right side of the green, it's like five paces on. There's 30 to 40 feet left of the flag. 
There's a bunker front right. Why would you even aim at that flag? Just dump it 25 feet and let's get out of here with a par. That was a par four. Next hole, par three, pins up on a little bit of a, like a shelf. There's a bunker right. There's water left. She tries to hit this high cut that starts out over the water to try and land it up on this plateau. Hits a good shot. It doesn't cut. Goes straight. Hits on the bank. Goes in the water. Back into looking at her golf swing. So we get back, and I said to the dad, she's a practice lass. That would have gone down well. <laughs> yeah. The dad was just like, so I said, so what we're going to do tomorrow is we're going to play first. We're going to go play nine holes, and then we're going to practice. And so, so I said, you know, we're going to tee off at nine. And so the dad sent me a message in the middle of the night and said, listen, um, what time do you guys open? Because she wants to practice tomorrow before she plays. So could we get there at seven o'clock? He said, she's not allowed to get to the golf course until 8.45. And she's got 15 minutes to warm up and then we're going to go play golf. And they were there. And I specifically told my guys to not open the golf, the, the, the learning center, which you guys, I said, show up late. Don't get there till 8.30. They'd been there since 6.30. No. She'd been putting. <laughs> she was trying. She was, she was in the trees trying to get balls. So she, she got some balls. I said, where did you get the balls? Dad said, oh, I went into the trees on the range because she needs to warm up. I'm like, no, no, no. We're going to play golf. Right? <laughs> she doesn't need to practice for two hours before she goes to play golf. She just needs to warm up. And then go play golf. So common. The, because she doesn't know the difference between practicing and playing. And she thinks, like a lot of golfers, they think the way that they're going to get better is through more practice. Yeah. And I think that's, it's, it's the reverse. You know, one of the great drills, I learned this, I saw this on, on Cameron McCormick's, on Altus Performance's Instagram it was like one of, you know, because they do a bunch of those tests and drills and stuff. So yeah. they had a, and Cam had a great one. It was, so it was six putts from four to seven feet, randomized, six putts from 15 to 20 feet, and then six putts from 30 to 40 feet. So you kind of go through that, go through your routine, take a tally, add them all up, figure out how many putts you have. And so a lot of players, when they do that, they, they putt. Pretty good, as you guys know, the putt pretty good from four to seven feet. You, they certainly expect to make all of those, right? So they've got six of those, right? And then they might make a putt from 15 to 20 feet, but they don't really make any putts from 15 to 20 feet. Might make one. And then they don't make any putts from 30 to 40 feet, and they three putt a lot. So you get a player, you know, I did this, you know, before the lockdown, did this with a junior player, you know, one of the best juniors in the country tell me, he's, you know, he's not making any putts. He's putting bad. So we do that. So he makes, I think he made five out of, out of, you know, the kid's like 13, 14 years old. One of the best juniors in the country made four out of the six from four to seven feet and was, you know, attitude when he missed one, you know, obviously expected to make it. So he's acting like a jackass. And then he made, I think one putt from 50 to 20 feet, made no putts from 30 to 40 feet and three putted four times. So I think he ended up having like, like, 34 putts and i said so do you have 30 and the dad's there you know super involved and, you know the dad's like yeah i keep telling him he needs to practice more five footers i'm like huh so i said if you have 34 putts on the golf course 
what do you do? What do you play? You go back and you practice four to seven footers, which you're already good at. I said, do you ever practice 30 to 40 foot putts? I said, other than the bullshit one where you do the Ben Crenshaw, get the speed of the green one before you go out and putt the 130 footer because you're such a great speed control player that you need to know the speed because the speed of the greens on the putting green might be different than on the golf course. It's cr- And so the average golfer would do that and immediately go mechanics, stroke mechanics. If your stroke yeah. mechanics were bad, you'd miss all the four to seven footers, every one of them. You wouldn't make any because yeah. your mechanics were bad. The face is all over the place. You can't control it. You'd miss or you take a, a golfer that's never played golf before and have them try and putt a three foot putt. They're going to miss the hole probably more times than they're going to make it. Right. I did this with Absolutely. my daughter the other day. I, we have a putting green in my backyard and I tried to get her to go out and, and I was filming some stuff and she took my putter two feet. Right. She's not a golfer. After 10 putts, she said, I hate golf, and left. She didn't hit the hole, (laughs) right? If your mechanics are bad and you don't know what you're doing, you won't make any putts from four to five, seven feet. We work backwards. We do it in putting. What does everybody work on in putting? Five footers. Let's make 100 five footers in a row. Great. And then you get on a left to right sloping putt from 30 feet that's got two breaks and the greens are slow or the greens are fast or it's uphill or downhill. And you four-put because you have no idea how to putt. You know how to work on mechanics, but you don't know how to putt. And I think that golfers are convinced that everything is mechanics. And it's not. And it's and at the tour level, guys, it's really not. Because at the tour level, everybody's good. Yeah. Everybody's mechanics are good. You can't get to the PGA tour exactly. without good mechanics. And we, we, we've said this many a time, the more, the, the better the golfer, the less they think and the less they talk about what they do. They know what to do. So DJ, Brooks, you know, Ricky Fowler, they all know what they're doing with their golf swing, but they don't, they know what they should be working on. They know they've got to keep it simple. I think that's just a fantastic message for any amateur golfer listening to this. Brooks last year got roasted. I was staying with him the week that he made the comment of, you know what? I don't practice. If you're, if I'm not, when he got home, I'm like, cause I know I'm like, dude, I know what you were trying to say. What he was trying to say is one, he plays so much golf during the course of a year that anytime he's not at a PGA tour event, he's trying to get rest. He's yeah. got to take some time off, let his body heal. And he's not at home on an off week hitting balls, eight, nine, 10 hours a day. You know, we played on Saturday with Mel Reed, um, from the UK who plays on the ladies tour. And she was asking Brooks about his practice. And I'd, I'd really wanted her to play with Brooks because, you know, she practices a lot. And she said, you know, I feel like sometimes I need to be out on the golf course, like, you know, practicing like six, seven, eight hours a day. And he's like, and Brooks said, what are you actually going to get out of that? Because he's like, your attention span, if you're, and, she, and he's like, are you talking about playing? And she's like, no, no, no. Like, X amount of hours for short game, X amount of hours for putting, X amount of hours for full swing. And he's like, you're doing this in one day. He's like, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, there's no way that's productive. And he said, my advice would be to spend two hours and break it up to where you've got two hours on full swing or two hour and then putting or short game. Or if your mechanics are good, 
and you've been hitting it good, you don't need to hit balls. Go chip and putt. If your putting's been good and if your short game's been good, don't do that. Go hit balls. And I think this idea of practicing for the sake of practicing is yeah. what are you getting out of it? And I don't think social media helps either because every aspiring golf pro I see is, you know, it's the video of them practicing and, you know, how many days they've been there and all of that. And I think if you're going to practice, I, I think the, the average golfer and everybody listening would be amazed at how much less the guys practiced than they thought, but how much more they get out of the time that they're practicing. Yeah, of course. You know, it's a little bit like yeah. exercising. You know, you get on a treadmill and you just run on a treadmill for five hours. You're going to, you know, every day, you're going to lose weight, but you're going to end up looking like a marathon runner. And if yeah. that's what you want to look like, great. But if you don't want to look like a marathon runner and you need strength and stability and all of that, I, I, I always use that analogy to, to golfers. What type of golfer do you want to be? Do you want to be someone that can do a lot of things or do you want to be somebody that can just do one thing? And the marathon runner, they just need to run long distances. So what do most marathon runners do? They run a lot of long distances, 5Ks, 10Ks, all of that. You just run because that's the only thing that you're going to be doing. If you look at a 100-meter Olympic sprinter, they look like athletes. They lift yes. weights. They do a lot yeah. of other things because that discipline that they're trying to do so much more of it goes into it than just being able to run fast. Well, how do you run fast? What are the mechanics that you would need to do with your body, the start, the stride, the strength component to handle all of that? And so I think golfers practice golf like marathon runners. They just do the same thing and they just do it over and over and over, and they do it for long extended periods. Mm -hmm. And then when they get out on the golf course, golf is a hundred meter sprint. So yes. much goes into it. It's not marathon running to where you're just gonna do the same thing over and over and over and over again, because there's so many other elements to it. And so I always try and get players to think about being able to be adaptable and be and practice everything but you don't need to stand there and do it for six seven eight hours a day no and i think you guys see this as well that's also super super prevalent in competitive golfers right you know i get a lot as you can imagine i get a lot of people that are trying to play and they all say listen um, you'll never meet anybody that works harder than me. I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> and they're like, and I want, you know, my goal is to be the best player in the world. And I said this recently, dude, tell me something I don't know. Everybody <laughs> wants to be the best player in the world that's trying to play competitive golf, right? That's the reason why you play. And the hardworking part, that's a prerequisite. If you're going to play competitive sports, you better be hardworking. So that isn't going to help you. The fact that you're hardworking and you want to be the number one player in the world, there's a thousand people trying to get on the challenge tour right now that are hardworking and want to be the number one player in the world. That will only get you so far. Yeah. And so yeah. I think the practice side of things um, 
I'm trying to spend less time on the driving range with Brooks, DJ, any of the players I've worked with. I'm trying to spend more time with them on the golf course. And I'm trying to do that with regular golfers as well. I think the number one thing that everybody listening, play more golf. It's a game. Yes. Practicing (laughs) is not a game. Mm. This is a top golf championship, which there may well be one day. But I think, look, yeah, I mean, Claude, you've been amazing. And, and I know we want to be conscious anybody, of your time. Does anybody I, watch Eastbound and Down? It's on HBO. If you don't no. watch Eastbound and Down, it's one of the best American television programs of all time. And it's about an ex-baseball player who, um, and Kenny Powers. And, you know, it's kind of the trials and tribulations and stuff. But he's, he, you know, he, he blows his career. He's trying to get his old girlfriend back and he goes to, um, so he's an ex baseball player and yeah. you know, he's just a terrible character, but it's a great show. And so his, his girlfriend's new boyfriend is the principal at the school that she works at. And he's now a PE teacher and the guy and the, and the, and the coach and the, the, the principal of the school says, um, I'm a, I'm an athlete just like you. I'm a, I'm, I'm a triathlete. And he says, I, I know all about getting in shape just like you. And he says, no, I don't. He said, I'm trying to be the best at real sports, not the best at getting in shape. <laughs> <laughs> exactly and I think right. if you think exactly about right. golf, if, if everybody listening, if your golf improves, that's the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter what your golf swing looks like. It doesn't matter what your technique looks like. And if you're going to play golf at any level, you have to be able to perform when your technique isn't good because it's not always going to be good. Golfers want to play sports like, you know, all of a sudden Cristiano Ronaldo goes down in the first half and pulls his hand. They don't stop and go, guys, we're out. We're going to wait until Cristiano gets better. Five weeks, he'll be fine. We're just going to forfeit all the games because obviously he's our best player and we can't play unless we have our best player. And I'm always trying to get golfers at all levels to think about you as, as a team sport. You are your team. You're not always going to be playing good. And you have to be able to find a way on the golf course to play and score and compete when things aren't going good. And I think that's the biggest barrier, guys, from people trying to break 100, people trying to break 90, people trying to break 80, is they don't know how to go out and figure out how to get the ball in the hole with what they're doing that day, whatever shape that is. They don't know how to take a big slice and say, okay, well, I can't fix this on the golf course. I'm playing for a score now. I'm slicing my driver 75 yards. Okay, I'm going to try and aim 75 yards to the left and see if I can somehow get this ball in play and not set up for the draw that I never hit and hit into the right trees and make a triple or a quadruple (laughs) bogey. Figure out a way and then – Go to the driving range afterwards and say, okay, what did I learn today about my game? Okay, how can I fix this and work on this? Okay, then go to the golf course and say, okay, now maybe I don't have to aim that far offline and figure it out that way. Um, yeah. I, and I you know what? I, and then... I have no yeah, sorry. idea if I'm right, um, but we totally agree. Try it. We totally, totally agree. agree. Totally agree. Totally agree. 
I think I think that, that comes that was going to be our last sort of question to you is like you know, what is the future of golf coaching? But it kind of is what you just said there. You know, golf coaches and players have got to buy into the fact that actually it's a game and we should be out there on their experiment. And even you can work at the technique on the golf course. Of course you can. You can work at playing that draw on the golf course, but at least get out of the golf course and do some work out there and do more of it. I think I think one of the things that helps players break these barriers from. 100, 90, 80, 70. And no joke, people think you would think at this level of my life and my career that I only work with great players. I'm very lucky to work with great tour players. I work with a lot of players that, that, that are trying to play competitively, but I still work at a private club and I work with our members and I work with people that are trying to break 80 for the first time, break 90 for the first time. And one of the big barriers of that is getting them over the fact that, listen, Get out on the golf course, keep score, and figure out what the problem is so that when you come back and practice, you can evaluate where you need to practice and what you need to do. Are you a bad putter? Are you a bad chipper? Are you bad? And if you can sometimes look at it objectively and say, you know what, I'm actually not as bad a putter as I think I am. So that could be a strength. Work on that and then try and work on the other things. But I think playing golf is far more important than practicing golf because the playing of the game tells you what you need to practice. Yes. Practicing isn't going to help you play the game any better. It might help you hit better shots, but it's not going to help you play the game any better. So if you're someone that's listening that's trying to break you know, 80 for the first time, trust me, spend less time on the range, more time on the golf course keeping score, and you'll figure out where you're wasting shots so that when you go practice, it's effective. Absolutely. Do you know what? Awesome. We, we, we could have had a three-hour podcast today, Claude. And, um, <laughs> Easy. We, we wrote a load of questions down, and I don't think we've got to many, but that doesn't matter because what you've talked about has been, has been really good. So uh, we sort of guessed it was going to go that way, but we really appreciate you. You know, I think one of the things that every time we've spoke to you and seen you, one of the things that really comes through is your passion to help people and it's, it's great to just hear how you talk about it and it's great that I think that your, your coaching is very much aligned with making people better in terms of you know improving the game in, instead of improving their swings it's, it's definitely right up our street and uh, it's something that we're you know, really, really passionate about as well. well last, thing, last thing I'll say is it's important for anybody that's a golf instructor out there is golfers want to get better they're not coming to you because they're excited it's like nobody goes to see the doctor unless they have to Right? Nobody's going and getting arm surgery unless they absolutely have to. Nobody, And I think that it's important if you're a golf instructor to remember that people are coming to you because they're not having any fun. They're confused. They're, they don't know what they're – most of the time they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. And if you can make it simple as possible, give them a couple of things to go away and work on that's going to help them improve the way that they contact the golf ball – it's, it's going to change their life because, yeah. you know, they're coming to you because they're struggling. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Well, 100%. I think look, we're respectful of your time. We normally finish with a quick fire and we'll see if we can keep it quick because of your time. All right. Uh, Claude, go we'll go a uh, quick fire round. Okay. Proudest moment of your career. Um, I think seeing Ernie Els win, you know, a major championship at that stage of his career, it was the first major championship that I'd ever been a part of um, personally um, to see where Ernie had been. Um, you know, he was probably going to quit golf in 2011 and then to 
to have an opportunity to win a major at that stage of his life was, you know, just something I think that he'd never could have envisioned happening. And to see that, um, it was, it was pretty amazing for me. Brilliant. Awesome. Brilliant. Uh, what would you like to change about golf? Um, I think we need more, I think we need less golf courses that are in the vein of Muirfield and Augusta National and Pine Valley and Seminole where there's rules and stuff. The game will not grow unless golf evolves. Um, I, I think the traditions of golf are great. Um, I, I think they should continue, but I think golf has to evolve. And I think, um, I think you should be able to wear what you want to wear when you play golf. Listen to what music you want. If you want to wear your hat on backwards and have your shirt untucked, if you're yeah. having fun and you know what the rules of golf are and you're respectful and you're not out there acting like a jackass just because somebody doesn't have their shirt tucked in doesn't mean that you can't have proper etiquette. I think the way that you look um, shouldn't be a, a barrier to playing golf. Brilliant. like that. Best advice you've ever had? My grandfather um, told my dad and my dad told me... Um, it's only what you learn after you think you know everything that really matters. So, something that I say to myself every single day that I teach. Um, I don't know everything. Um, and the other best advice my dad got, gave me is um, you're replaceable. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm very good at what I do, but Brooks, DJ, everybody, you know, I've been fired by some of the best players in the world. We're all replaceable. And I think anytime you think that you're un touchable and not replaceable i think it's a dangerous place to be um and i i, I live every day knowing that brooks can dj they can find somebody else to to help them and yeah. you know i gotta be on top yeah. of what i'm doing keeps you hungry keeps you driven absolutely uh, uh, best player you've ever worked with Ooh, it's a tough question that one yeah i mean they're all i mean i think dj is probably the best natural athlete I've ever been around. Um, you know, he was a three, four sport athlete. He can still pretty much do anything. He's one of those guys, you know, if you go wakeboarding, he can wakeboard. If you go skiing, he can ski. If he shoots baskets, he can shoot baskets. If he surfs, he, I mean, he's just, a, he's a freak, freak athlete. Obviously being around Tiger for as long as I was around Tiger was amazing. Um, you know, Greg Norman, I don't think gets the credit he deserves for being such an amazing player. Um, so it's hard to, it's hard to pick that one. Okay, perfect. And last question, what's the best thing about being a coach? I think the best thing about being a coach is you get to help people. I think, you know, you get to show people that something that is difficult to them can somewhat be simplified and it's not as difficult as they thought. And, you know, I think the best thing about being a coach is when the light bulb goes off, when you see that, a person who's trying to hit the golf ball solid all the time when, you know, they, they go, Oh gosh, I felt something different now. Okay. I, now I realize why I didn't do all of the things that I was doing before weren't working. I think that's fascinating to watch that moment of seeing people go, oh, okay, now I'm starting to not hit it thin anymore. Now I'm not starting to hit it fat anymore. Um, you know, I think that to me is, it's so cool when you can be a part of that and see people kind of go, wow, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm enjoying it more. And I, to me, that's really cool. Yeah. 
Brilliant. Well, look, Claude, it's, thank uh, you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It's absolutely. been great to have you on. I know the listeners are going to really enjoy this. Is there anywhere that they can follow you and, what, and follow your you work? Know, all my social media stuff, you know, Instagram, Twitter and stuff. I do a lot of stuff on, on, on Instagram and, um, you know, we'll, we'll keep putting up content. Um, we, we, we've got to get one day when we do this, we all got to wear the same outfit. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you guys, yeah, you absolutely. guys, you guys always have the matching outfit, but I always feel like I'm the odd guy out. <laughs> we'll do it. And look, what we want to hey, do. Hey, you were close though. You were close and, though and, the last time round. I think you had it the, the blue and white, just the wrong wrong way round. I did. And, and, and this is full disclosure. I, w- I will say this: that before I knew you guys, people would always ask me if I knew who you guys were, and I was like, I don't know who they are. And they're like, I'm like. And I used to call you to the golf twins. I'm like, oh yeah, the golf twins. <laughs> those guys. I know who those guys are. So. For a long time, you guys were called the golf twins. Okay. Well, we'd be called, we'd be called worse, I can tell you that, Claude. Be the golf triplets one day. Hey, yeah. let's do it. But no, look, thanks for your time. We'd love to come and spend some time with you at your facility yeah. at some point and, and watch what you do. Anytime. Well, Claude, that'd be great. But uh, thank you so much anyway. Stay safe, everybody. Stay safe. Stay home as long as you can. Cheers, Claude. Thank you. All right, Bob. There you have it. Some unbelievable stuff from Claude. And as we said, he... He does like to talk, and that's actually a really, sometimes a very interesting recipe when you put someone like Claude in the room with me and Andy, three people who really like to talk about the the game of golf, but you can see how passionate he is about the game and how much knowledge and wisdom he has to offer golfers of all levels. And you know what? We just absolutely love doing that podcast with Claude. Whenever we spend time with him, there's always a lot of value in what our discussions that we have. So very thankful to him for coming onto the podcast and we look forward to doing some more work with him in the future. Now, if you did enjoy that, please go and leave us a review, give us a rating, and also share this with your friends. We wanna keep pushing this podcast, getting some amazing guests just like Claude, and the more exposure we can get on this podcast, the easier that will be. So thank you so much, and we look forward to seeing you next week.